hey, if things were easy, you'd be bored all the time. And so I think it's important to, you know, face the challenges and step up to the plate and kind of pitch in and do what we can for the causes that we believe in. This is the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who thrives on opportunities to innovate. Now is the time to take a creative approach to making a living by leveraging your network and building new relationships. Today, we're learning all about entrepreneurship through an artistic lens, specifically the lens of two Hispanic artists as we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. My guests, Farah Sosa and Fred Villanueva, are both Latinx visual artists and entrepreneurs who are surviving the changes that this pandemic has brought to the art world. Fred Villanueva is the founder of Ash Studios, a community-driven art collective and studio in Dallas, Texas, inspired by Andy Warhol's The Factory. Before the pandemic, it was host to a thriving underground hip-hop and punk space and artist collective for all forms of art and hosted concerts with musicians such as Travis Scott and Post Malone. And in a moment, I'll tell you what he's up to now. But first, I'll introduce you to Farah Sosa, who is a culture photographer from Guatemala based in Southern California. Here's Farah on how she makes a living. I am a photographer. I focus in music and culture and lifestyle, and that is how I predominantly make a living. So Farah, I first met you at one of the I Make a Living live events in Los Angeles, and you've actually been the photographer for three of those live events. So most of the people who are listening, if they've been to one of those events, they probably had their photo taken by you. When you are working, it's so different being a lifestyle photographer and a music photographer like you do. It's really artistic and it's not just the sit down and smile pretty. There's so much that goes into the composition of a photo. Can you talk a little bit about your process and your philosophy as an artist when you're shooting? I like shooting humans. I like shooting movement. Right now, I am shifting a little bit to something more intimate. I am having like more one-on-one sessions with people. That pandemic related? Absolutely. It was really interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, we chatted with FreshBooks and some of us entrepreneurs were about to share, uh, what are we doing to cope with this pandemic? And it's amazing how I was just thinking about it. I wanted to have a plan of what I was going to do with my life. A little bit, you know, life is still very uncertain right now. But I did come up with these three points that I wanted to follow. And having that at the beginning, having this Freshworks chat about how I'm going to develop my life helped. So I wanted to get involved into more intimate scenarios because it just felt safer uh, gives me a different opportunity and a different approach to treat my work. I had to stay interested in what I'm doing and not lose focus on the fact that I am still a photographer no matter what. So how am I going to do my job? This is what I want to do in my life. And uh, this has been my dream, my passion, and is my profession. I started uh, doing more research about what to do. I am affiliated to professional photographers associations and they keep providing information about how to do it safe, uh, the kind of uh, protective equipment you have to have, distance uh, suggestions, talking to other professionals, you know, discussion groups, things that will help you understand what is happening in other environments are really helpful. So I went to research. 
Farah dug deep into her established relationships in the FreshBooks community and photography circles to get some insight into how the photography scene was evolving. Our next artist, Fred Villanueva, has also used his community to generate opportunities. Here's Fred on how he makes a living. Well, I am a professional artist, uh, which typically means I play a lot of different roles. You know, sometimes I feel like I work three jobs, 80 to 90 hours a week, but sometimes I feel like I've got time to take a breather as well. So I kind of come out of a conceptual art background, which typically means that you do a lot of everything. And so I worked through corporate graphic design. I've done startups. I've done giant corporations. I've been in the banking industry as a designer. And eventually that led me back into starting my own arts practice and art studio practice as well. And so these days, typically that means working with municipalities and private collectors and galleries and uh, sometimes cultural spaces. And you're so experienced as an artist. You've gone through some of the traditional training routes, but there's this, I don't know if it's a myth, Fred, but there's this phrase of the starving artist, right? And that when you're going into art as a career that you should be prepared for a life of suffering. Has that been your experience? I think I lived that for maybe uh, three months after art school, but uh, then sort of realized that that, that failure wasn't really an option for me. I mean, at this point, I'm 47 years old and I have a seven-year-old daughter and it's definitely out of the, (laughs) not in the cards. I kind of look at the world and specifically uh, making a living as an artist in this world as an area that's actually full of opportunities. Mm, I love that perspective. Flipping that idea on its ear and really looking for the opportunities and especially at a time like this where it's already hard enough to make a living as an artist. And now we're dealing with COVID and financing for projects drying up. How have you navigated specifically within the pandemic? Because you've been able to continue making art and doing big, large-scale projects. How did those opportunities come about for you? Well, I've been, you know, kind of laying the foundations and thinking entrepreneurially for quite a while now. I was lucky enough um, after art school to have a, a mentor in New York City who encouraged me to think entrepreneurially and really to get into the world of public art, to get kind of outside the world of uh, fickle galleries and dilettante collectors and stuff, and to really start thinking as a, kind of a community-based and, and public artist. That's really what I've expanded to. And I've always had the mindset, especially during rough times in the economy, that you have to be a little bit more innovative and look under every cushion, you know, to maybe use a Warholian phrase. But that's exactly what we've been doing. And um, luckily, we, we, when I say we, my studio, I have a collaborative uh, art studio practice. And these days, it's, it's more social practice. We had kind of laid the foundations for working with cities and municipalities and residents and communities outside of the studio. So I think there's a, a traditional view of the artist as somebody who stays in the studio smoking and mm-hmm. making a painting. Our approach has always been a little bit different. There's time for that, but there's also time for the art to happen off-site, so to speak. I want to get into the nitty-gritty of, like you were saying, this, this idea that the artist is supposed to be just in the studio toiling away. And the way that now, at least in my city, I'm seeing art brought out into the streets in a different way. And I feel like the dialogue has changed around public art and 
celebration of culture. Are you seeing that where you are as well? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. My studio in Dallas, Texas, basically has has been advocating for equitable representation, you know, in the arts, in public art, in city-funded art projects. And public art projects don't necessarily have to look like paintings or murals or giant sculptures and uh, things like that. To us, public art typically also means working directly with, you know, disenfranchised communities. And for us, working with the Black community and working with the Latino community here in Dallas, that's that's kind of the paramount concern. Uh, sometimes public art projects are, are working with, say, a, a school room of kids or a uh, rec center full of senior citizens, you know, working collaboratively on a, on a mobile mural type project. So it's kind of a redefinition of what art can be. Since I'm not in the art world, maybe you can educate me. So there's money for that? Uh, Believe it or not, we were able to advocate successfully for funding directly to artists. Before we did that, there really wasn't. We got the whole sort of, uh, hey, we hear you've got this great community art project in mind. Have you ever heard of Kickstarter? And that was just unacceptable. And so we continued abdicating and basically knocking on the door of the city council over and over. And also, you know, engaging in educating ourselves about political advocacy and uh, cultural advocacy. And so we've somehow been able to uh, advocate in a cosmopolitan area like Dallas and Fort Worth, uh, the DFW North Texas area for uh, funding direct to artists and and to nonprofits for cultural purposes. This is an incredible feat. He didn't give up, and it resulted in his local government investing in arts and culture within their community. This is a major achievement at any point, but at a time when budgets are shrinking, it's downright miraculous. It sounds to me, Fred, like you're really thinking as an artist with an entrepreneurial spirit or lens. I would love to know specifically, other than being persistent, which it sounds like was an element of this, what would you say to the entrepreneurs and artists who are listening about getting funding? What went into that pitch? What went into your process as you were developing your strategy to do this and as you were iterating along the way when I'm sure you got a lot of no's? How did you really make it happen? Well, I would say that possibly the most important skill set was to, you know, learn to collaborate with others, learn to find commonalities um, within your own artistic community and learn the skill of organizing. And I'll tell you, that was possibly for me personally, the most difficult part. Luckily, you know, my creative collaborator partner, Daryl Ratcliffe here in Dallas is also a little bit more sort of on the public side, a little bit more willing to engage in uh, city council meetings and budget meetings and uh, learning the process. I'm a little bit more sort of boots on the ground at the studio and and, uh, studio management and project management. So really, I think kind of playing to your strengths is uh, the best route. But really what I can say is that you can accomplish much more as a group of individuals within a collaborative than you can as somebody who is sort of a a single-minded person. So I'd say really it's it's in Mm. organizing. At Ash Studios, community means coming together and playing to each other's talents to survive and thrive. What does community mean to you? Who are you teaming up with to meet your goals right now? Vera, too, is using a cross-disciplinary approach by collaborating with musicians and journalists. 
especially as a music photographer, I'm sure a lot of your customers, the people who you normally would shoot, they're not doing live shows. They're not making money in the same way that they once were, and they're having to adapt. I saw this really beautiful series that you did for the Grammy Awards for the Recording Academy, where you took the closed LA music venues and you did photos of them in the pandemic. Where was that idea born out of? I've been documenting music in LA since, predominantly non-mainstream music scenes. And sometimes the mainstream comes to us and it just crosses board, you know, and it's become this, this documentation thing. But keeping this moment in history for me was equally important because these places have represented so much for the history of music, for LA, for audience and artists alike. And uh, I thought about this idea initially just as documentation for historical sake, for history not to get lost because if these venues continue not to have financial aid from the government, if these venues continue to be shut as they should and as they are and they are complying, some of them may not survive and uh, they may disappear from the map. And this moment was just relevant for it. The idea started with documenting venues where I have taken photos before. So far, that's what I am doing. And I would like to expand the research to other venues that are not in my archives, but that are equally important in the music history of L.A. So far, in, in the Grammy article we highlighted, I think that I shot 12 or so. I am losing count because I think that my list is about 45 L.A. venues. And so far, I'm like at 30-something. And wow. uh, we showed only about 12. But uh, it doesn't mean that the history is not there and that the subject is stopping to be relevant. They need help. The article at Grammy.com was really wonderful. I am so glad that they gave us the opportunity to show it up there. I paired up with this journalist in New York, Jessica Lipsky, and she was really wonderful at transcribing the thoughts of the photos into words. I want to also highlight another element of your work, because not only are you a music photographer who's now adapted into documenting these venues, but you also particularly focus on shooting, you said, artists who are not in the mainstream? Predominantly, yes. Um, what do you mean by that, Farah? I may not be shooting a pop star, for example, or a top 40s person, but it really shifts to more intimate spaces. It was already intimate before. Now I just have it intimate, but with less people. Right now, what I continue to do also, in addition to documenting the venues, I am also working whether outdoors or semi-in-studio with musicians that I had worked in the past, with uh, artists that continue to work in music, but they are doing it just at the closed doors. Let's talk about some of those artists, because you also are highlighting artists that some of our audience might not know. You are from Guatemala, yes? I was born in Guatemala, yes. And it seems that a lot of the artists that you have shot are also from the Hispanic community. Is that a focus? Is that, are you setting out to highlight different voices or is that something where it's more, you feel a commonality together? What has drawn you to those artists? I like humans in general. <laughs> I like humans from all over the planet and a lot of our music resonates together. So there's African percussion that came to Colombia and then became Cumbia and landed in Mexico and now we have it all over the world. So... 
in reality, there's a lot of universal music and we may not speak the same language, but we are connected to the same sounds. So I, I think that the main connection is music and uh, we just happen to like highly percussive global sounds that have um, Afro-Latin heritage and that is our common denominator, the music that brings us together. And it happens to be very hot and very sexy, so that's just extra. <laughs> <laughs> Always helps. Art often reflects culture. As it's Hispanic Heritage Month, it's worth noting that artists like Fred and Farah use their art to communicate their connection to their roots. And as artistic entrepreneurs, they find creative ways to monetize community art while expanding culture. For Fred, this looks like securing funding for social justice artwork and these are funds that otherwise may have been allocated elsewhere. It's so important that we're having this conversation, and especially now, not only coming out of COVID, coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement, but also it is Hispanic Heritage Month. And you've talked a lot about the communities that you work in, and one of those being the Hispanic community and the Black community. How do you feel like your cultural identity informs your work, both in the art and also in the advocacy that you're doing? I lived in San Francisco, uh, California. I went to art school there and uh, then uh, also in New York City. And so coming back to uh, Texas, it was uh, eye-opening to see just how much of the Black and Latino community are in a state of sort of disenfranchisement here, culturally speaking. Mm. Um, there are not just food deserts, but cultural deserts as well. And so we kind of feel that as cultural workers, that it's kind of up to us to to fill the gaps there. I love that term that you just said, cultural workers. That's not something that I've heard before, really. And I'm curious to dig into that a little bit more. Can you define that term for me and what it means to you? We can't just study Western culture. I mean, like, you know, we have indigenous culture, we have African culture, we have Asian culture. And if these are our backgrounds, well, this is our material, then it may not look necessarily like something that would belong in the Louvre or the Tate Modern in London or, you know, the Prado in Madrid. It doesn't necessarily come from a European tradition. So being a cultural worker basically means is remembering kind of what your background is and experiences you can glean from that and then acknowledging that debt and then sort of giving back to the community when you can. Yeah. So it sounds like it's twofold. It's one, taking actions to give back to your community, but also letting people within the community see themselves reflected in the art and the environment in which they live and really taking the local culture and using that as inspiration. Because like I live in an area where at a time there was a lot of graffiti and it's just like clean up the graffiti. <laughs> but to some, the graffiti is the art. And in a way, if we really step back and look at it, the art is also a voice of what's happening socially in the community itself. Do you see that too? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the issue that I have is maybe bad graffiti. <laughs> I love great graffiti, <laughs> you know, somewhere where somebody just really kind of knocks it out of the ballpark, you know, and does this great mural, um, whether it's a tag or, or something representative. But um, yeah, definitely muralism is um, one of the expressions of desires. I've heard that there's a big discrepancy as well in the sort of traditional art galleries or curators 
there's a major bias towards both male artists and Caucasian artists. And this is not just in Europe. This is in the United States. From what I've read, do you see that changing? Do you see that line of thinking adapting any? I'm glad that you brought that up because that is, uh, you know, one of our underlying motivations, you know, and that's kind of what we mean by achieving artists' equity and achieving equitable representation in the art world, whether that's gallery walls or museum walls. And uh, there's one thing about numbers and statistics, and that's that the numbers don't lie. (laughs) And so essentially, again, luckily, like my creative collaborator partner, Daryl Radcliffe, He's more of a spreadsheet and numbers guy as well, in addition to being a social practice artist. So in our advocacy, numbers like that kind of came into play. In other words, like we spent years doing research on, uh, you know, equitable representation and who was being shown where and and how many shows were uh, going to any person of color, really, or uh, LGBTQ community. So we um, take all that into account. And we definitely see that in our advocating in our own practices that that we're working towards uh, more of a solution. But I will tell you, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> like a lot of the social justice work, right? I mean, we are unraveling years and years. It's It's even like if you really dive deeper into just standard of beauty or cultural associations, when you look at it from the lens of art and what somebody considers valuable or what somebody considers beautiful or thought-provoking, it is directly impacted by their own cultural experience, but then also by the majority culture and what other people have assigned value to. So it's interesting to look at how we unravel that and the work that you're doing, chipping away at those old ideals, but it's not easy. But hey, if things were easy, you'd be bored all the time. And so I think it's important to, you know, face the challenges and step up to the plate and kind of pitch in and do what we can for the causes that we believe in. And just the act of being a Latino artist is a political act because you are basically expressing, you are basically observing and communicating in a form that the powers that be may not always appreciate. That's a profound way to look at it. A recurring theme amongst many of our guests is that when you're passionate enough about your talent and you do the work, the money will follow. But another common practice in entrepreneurship is using your main source of income to fund your passion project. Yet according to Fred, sometimes the line between your various ventures gets blurred. Even the ability to express your art in a way, it doesn't have to be, but it is sort of a privilege just to be able to pursue that and not have to worry so much about putting food on the table. Like it's hard to be in that spirit of exploration and expression when you're dealing with the practicalities of life. But you've actually navigated this very well, it seems, throughout your experience and as you were learning and building your practice and your studio. How did you make it through when art was more of a side hustle than main hustle? What's your philosophy on how people can build through to the point where you are today? I would say to kind of take a a sort of a cross-sectional view of uh, having maybe parallel 
approaches to what creativity is. And uh, that looks like, hey, the kind of tried and true formula that, that Warhol came up with, which was, I do the commercial art, which will fund the fine art, which will fund the uh, movies, which will go back into the fine art, which will hopefully one day become commercial art as well. So it's, I think, maybe kind of having um, almost a, an agnostic view of the forms of creativity that we're usually um, enculturated with and, and educated with. It's kind of letting go of the idea of what an art practice should look like. And I think also being open to the possibility that you'll eventually do what you need to do. And, and I think maybe having a, a healthy mindset of really not getting stuck in failures, maybe learning from failures and uh, continuing to be open to learning to progress. So the Warhol philosophy is you take the projects that maybe are not your passion projects, but the ones that are more financially viable and use those to fund the projects that are more of your passion projects. But that's not it for an artist necessarily. We may be talking to some people in the show who have not even gotten to that point yet. And they're still doing just like side hustle, daily living, put food on the table type jobs. Have you been through that experience before? Um, yeah, absolutely. I've kind of done my hustle as a, as a freelance, you know, graphic uh, designer. You know, I've, I've done my time in the corporate office chair. I've undergone the fluorescence and the um, beige boardroom and stuff like that. And uh, definitely was not my, you know, they weren't my happiest moments. I've also done my time as kind of the, the gig economy worker and stuff. I mean, we at the studio here kind of Airbnb'd a loft and it was kind of a form of cultural tourism. So, you know, basically we kind of look where income potential can be found. And from skipping this uh, opportunity to opportunity, it's it's kind of like skipping from stone to stone until you, you kind of find that time to get back in the studio. If things were easy, you know, you'd be bored all the time. And so really, I think struggling as an artist is, is really a great way to kind of learn to live. We recognize that this is a difficult time to pursue your passion. But if you're up for the challenge, you're going to need to get organized. Many of us creatives are great at the artistic side of the business, but struggle with the important stuff like organization and billing. We decided to finish out this episode with some practical advice on how to keep your business running right now. I mentioned at the beginning that you were not only a photographer for the I Make a Living event by FreshBooks. But one of the reasons that you were the photographer there was because you were a FreshBooks customer. I started using FreshBooks via a suggestion of another FreshBooks user, a person that works in the music industry, a smaller scale event producer that is an independent person such as myself. As soon as I got on it, it was really easy to understand. Invoicing was my main issue. I was going for PDFs before. I think that some of my friends still do that. And I keep insisting that having an invoicing tool is the best thing ever to do your own accounting at home. Sometimes artists aren't always the most organized <laughs> with things like finances or client management tools. Are there things that you do as an artist other than FreshBooks that keep you on track and make you able to scale up your business in those busier times? One of the other things that I had shared with FreshBooks at the beginning of the pandemic was keeping in touch with your clients. So very important. 
And I'm so glad that I set those goals at the beginning. I've kept in touch with my clients. I think the human contact is not as easy right now, but you can keep talking to people. You can be a little more human than just social media. This is the time to reconnect with the fellow humans around you, especially the people that you have a business relationship with, because everybody's on the same boat right now, regardless of the size of business uh, that you have. Everybody's going through something because of the situation that we're all living. So if you talk to one another, you can understand that you're not alone, that um, there are still needs out there for your business. You can learn how people are pivoting. You can take time to breathe, you know, and share with others that this is your breathing time and you need a minute. And this is the time where people are being extra understanding, or maybe I've been that lucky. But but it has worked for me, and I am really thankful that it's been presented that way on, on my side. Communication is terribly important. It's a must. And one thing extra important, I think, is also self-care. Like, if you feel that you're down, be down. If you feel that, that you need to just relax, it's totally fine. The day is long, and you have time right now to be able to do that. And you have time to get creative if that is where your energy drives you, but Self-care is very important. So when you need to take a break, do it. Thank you for that reminder. I needed to hear that today. I'm (laughs) sure somebody else listening is like, yes, you were the inspirational quote for them (laughs) for today. Farah, before we go, I would love to know one last nugget from you. Farah, what is the last piece of advice that you either gave or received? Um, You built this life. Nobody has the life that you have. As entrepreneurs, like the careers that we give ourselves, uh, we invented them. I invented being an event music lifestyle photographer, the way that I sought for it to be. So I invented this life for myself. And at this time, thankfully, I had worked so much before. And right now, if I need to breathe, I can. And when I shoot, I do. But it's something that I built myself. And as entrepreneurs, we do that. If you're going to become, a, I don't know, a flower shop, you're going to do it in a way that is going to be very you. You're not going to follow another pattern, perhaps because uh, you know a better way, but it's going to have your touch. So you're going to invent whatever it is that you need to do. And when you do, you have to keep up with it. You have to pursue it because that's what you want it, right? So you have the power to invent yourself. Here's some more food for thought. The Creative Vitality Index is the measurement of the creative activity in your region. When you compare this number with the average GDP growth, it shows a direct correlation between the depth of the cultural scene and the strength of the talent pool across all industries. Meaning when your business is based in an artistic place, it's easier to attract strong talent pools. Just look at places like Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado, and Nashville, Tennessee. So really, the arts are a huge part of the economy, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Here are a few things we learned from Farah and Fred today. There's no time to network like the present. Even if you didn't spend time pre-COVID nurturing your contacts, you can still start now. Strength in numbers. By forming a collective or group of like-minded professionals, you can have influence and someone to rely on when the going gets tough. Be open to innovation. Even if you can't make a living in the exact way you did before, find partnerships and opportunities that can utilize your skill set in a way that is mutually beneficial. 
There's money out there. Get creative about the ways you find funding for your work. Make sure you check out Farrah Sosa's music photography archive on Instagram at Stop, and visit Grammy.com to find her LA music venue photo series. Find Fred Villanueva's work at ashstudios.org and look for Ash Studios' contribution to Resist COVID Take Six, a nationwide art campaign by Carrie Mae Weems. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. Is it time you put your creative brain towards organization? Check out the exclusive offer for our podcast listeners at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our producer and director is Paco Erzmendi, and I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. Let's connect at Demona Hoffman on all the socials or at demonahoffman.com. And tap into your creativity to navigate the new normal because it's your business. See you next week.